We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. All the folks talking, welcome in this morning. Glad you're here to worship with us today. We had a good Sunday school uh, session, I thought, and uh, we'll carry on with that uh, either this evening or the next time. I have more than I, more material than I thought. Susan, good to see you. God bless you. Right. Our scripture reading this morning is in Ezekiel, please, if you'd turn there, 29, still in the segment of judgments here in Ezekiel's prophecy. We'll see what the Lord would teach us from this section of scripture. In the 10th year and the 10th month, on the 12th day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all Egypt. Speak. And say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Pharaoh, king of Egypt, O great monster who lies in the midst of his rivers, who has said, My river is my own, I have made it for myself. I will put hooks in your jaws and cause the fish of your rivers to stick to your scales. I will bring you up out of the midst of your rivers, and all the fish in your rivers will stick to your scales. I will leave you in the wilderness, you and all the fish of your rivers. You shall fall on the open field. You shall not be picked up or gathered. I have given you as food to the beasts of the field and to the birds of the heavens. Then all the inhabitants of Egypt shall know that I am the Lord, because they have been a staff of reed to the house of Israel. When they took hold of you with the hand, you broke and tore all their shoulders When they leaned on you, you broke and made all their backs quiver. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Surely I will bring a sword upon you and cut off from you man and beast. And the land of Egypt shall become desolate and waste. Then they will know that I am the Lord, because he said, The river is mine and I have made it. Don't ever say that we we have made things that God has made. Yeah, we need to humble ourselves as a human race thank God for what he has made and not take credit for those things ourselves. Verse 10, Indeed, therefore, I am against you and against your rivers, and I will make the land of Egypt utterly waste and desolate from Migdal to Syene, as far as the border of Ethiopia. Neither foot of man shall pass through it, nor foot of beast pass through it, and it shall be uninhabited forty years. I will make the land of Egypt desolate in the midst of the countries that are desolate. And among the cities that are laid waste, her cities shall be desolate forty years, and I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them throughout the countries. Yet, thus says the Lord God, at the end of forty years I will gather the Egyptians from the peoples among whom they were scattered. I will bring back the captives of Egypt and cause them to return to the land of Pathros, to the land of their origin, and there they shall be a lowly kingdom." It shall be the lowliest of kingdoms. It shall never again exalt itself above the nations, for I will diminish them so that they will not rule over the nations anymore. No longer shall it be the confidence of the house of Israel, but will remind them of their iniquity when they turn to follow them. Then they shall know that I am the Lord God. And it came to pass in the 27th year, in the first month, and on the first day of the month, that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, caused his army to labor strenuously against Tyre. Every head was made bald and every shoulder rubbed raw. Yet neither he nor his army received wages from Tyre for the labor which they expended on it. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Surely I will give the land of Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He shall take away her wealth, carry off her spoil, and remove her pillage. And that will be the wages for his army. I have given him the land of Egypt for his labor, because they worked for me, says the Lord God. Can you believe that? Better believe it. It's written in the word. 
But that's interesting, isn't it, that God used that wicked nation as his employees to carry out his will. In that day, verse 21, I will cause the horn of the house of Israel to spring forth, and I will open your mouth to speak in their midst, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Amen. May God bless that reading of his word. We're going to look at the part of that foundation that sits in Philippians chapter 3. This morning, if you would turn there with me, chapter 3, verses 4 through 11, Philippians chapter 3, 4 through 11, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, if you find any of those books, hopefully that'll help orient you there, Philippians, just four short chapters. We're in chapter 3, just about halfway through the letter. We're going to cut into the middle of a passage of Scripture here. It's really a lengthy, as, as the Apostle Paul likes to do, give lengthy sentences. We're going to cut into the middle of that in verse number 4. We've talked about uh, Paul telling the believers there to rejoice in the Lord uh, and reviewing with them to beware of false teachers uh, of whom they had to beware of many, and we also the same today, so many different religions and uh, philosophies, and, and that's not even really the most problem. The most is the media today, which is uh, full of preachers who are trying to get across their message, and uh, they have uh, at their disposal great amounts of money and um, fancy-looking, attractive media uh, and technology and all of that, uh, trying to teach us what they want us to believe. We must beware. And uh, one of the, the, the kind of explanation that the Apostle Paul gives for this is, especially when it comes to religious false information, we know who we are. We are, he says, the circumcision, meaning in his case, he's saying we're the real believers. We're the ones who have the circumcision of the heart, that is regeneration, as it's called in Christian theology, where we've been given a new heart. I mean, you know that you, before you became a Christian, you know you, as you look back, you needed a new heart. It was dark. It was not a good place. It was a place of sin and, and shame and being apart from God. And, and so Paul says, you know, we know who we are. We know we needed that new heart. We got that new heart. We worship God in the Spirit, we rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. And that phrase is now going to key Paul to like almost switch into a new theme, which is his autobiography. I've titled this Paul's Theological Autobiography, or I could call it Paul's Spiritual Autobiography. It's his testimony. He realized his religious works were useless to obtain God's righteousness. And so we're going to come to this this morning with a, a kind of a before and after view on our lives, just like Paul did. And all of us have a before Christ time in our lives. Some of us may still be in that before Christ time in our lives. And, and sometimes we've put stock in religious practices that were useless to save our souls. So I ask you this morning, are you in your B.C. period still? Without sure knowledge that you're delivered from sin? Or are you in the new A.D. period of your life? You know what A.D. stands for, right? The year of our Lord, Anno Domini. And it reflects actually very interestingly the doctrine of salvation. Before Christ, B.C., you were your own Lord. After the Lord comes in your life, A.D., He is your Lord. How many, how many years of the Lord's reign have you been under since you were born again? Some of you are doing the mathematics in your mind thinking, hmm, how long have I been walking with Christ? I just use that little play on the calendar structure that we have of B.C. and A.D. to remind you our B.C. time period before Christ and our, and our time period after Christ came into our lives. Where are you? And the Apostle Paul looks, you know, before Christ, B.C. in my life, I thought I had a lot going for me. 
A.D., I realized, now that stuff was, that was old news. That was no good back there. So the dividing line between B.C. and A.D. is when you come to understand what Christ did in dying for you, that the Lord Jesus lived a perfect life and did so to to have a righteousness to give to you, to stand before God, to actually to demonstrate the righteousness which he had inherently. He died in your place to pay for your sin penalty so that you could be forgiven of your sin and guilt. And you know if you're in the B.C. time of your life that you have sin and guilt and you don't know what to do about it. Well, I'll tell you what to do about it. It's to bring it to Christ Jesus. It's to go to the cross with it. It's to acknowledge that he rose again from the dead to to demonstrate the completeness of his work and to provide you with spiritual blessings. You know, he rose again to provide you with blessings like freedom from sin's power. You, you will be raised to a newness of life. You'll have a brand new kind of life, and you'll be purified in union with him. And, and by the way, because of his resurrection, you have hope for the resurrection of the dead. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. So he died and he rose again, and he says if you believe in him, in accordance with all of the above that we've just mentioned, then you will be saved. You will be saved. Romans 10, 9, and 10. Acknowledge the Lord Jesus. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you'll be saved. You'll be a Christian. I want everybody in this room to be sure that you know that you are a follower of Christ. And we're going to talk about how the Apostle Paul knew that in his life in one particular way, in in the transition between B.C. to A.D. for himself. And so as we look at chapter 3, verse 4 and following, we're going to see that Paul, first of all, had a confidence in his own work, in his own flesh, he calls it, which he later finds out was unfounded. But let's look at this in verse 4. He says, and we're the ones in verse 3 who have no confidence in the flesh, though I might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. So the point of this is to say, what what Paul is saying as he writes is, look, you're faced with these false teachers. They have bad ideas. They think that by circumcision and by all these religious works, they're going to be made right before God. And that's all wrong. But let's suppose for a moment, just for sake of argument, that they are right And the things that they say are somehow true, that we can achieve good standing before God. Paul says, I've got them beat. I've beat them all. Okay, He was the A-plus student in their class. And now what he's trying to do is he's trying to realize, you know, I learned that stuff so well in Pharisaic Judaism, and now I know that it was all false and I'm trying to get the rest of my class to follow me, to, to, to realize that they are not in a good standing with God. And so Paul could compete with any Judaizer on the basis of their qualification system of anyone. Paul had the most reason to be confident in the flesh, if that were a worthwhile thing, which he's assuming for the moment it is, but it's not really. The Judaizers were boasting of their supposedly meritorious law-keeping works, but Paul had them beat by a mile. If they could boast, so could he, and twice as much. And so he is using the kind of style of argumentation that is to say, look, we know that they're wrong, but let's just suppose for a moment that they're right, and let's think about that. What he's doing is he's answering the fool according to his folly so that that fool will not be wise in his own eyes, Proverbs 26, verse number 5. So Paul gives a list of qualifications. This is his religious resume. You ever written a resume? Any of you young people here, have you written a resume yet? You haven't written your first one maybe, uh, but you will someday. And this is what his resume said. He says in verse number 4, or sorry, 5, he says, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, A Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee. Did you know that Paul was a Pharisee? Uh, The sixth one in verse 6, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, and finally concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. 
He says, look at me. Look at me. All the wonderful things that I had. I was everything that a, that a person could ever want to be in terms of the faith. Now, none of this has anything to do with Jesus. What does it have to do with? Paul, himself, his trust in ethnic background. Numbers one to three on my list. Circumcised, stock of Israel, tribe of Benjamin. And self-effort. Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee, zealous, blameless in the righteousness of the law. Now, how many humans think the same general way that Paul formerly did? We might not be religious at all, but we trust in our philanthropy or our good behavior. We might be very circumspect about our religious observance. You know, if we believe those approaches will get us somewhere and Jesus is not at the forefront of our consideration about how to achieve a right standing with God, then we are outside of the boundaries of God's word. This bad thinking is what Paul talks about when he talks next about the ideas of gain and loss. Gain and loss, verse 7. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, verse 8, I, account, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. He says and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, that being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead." So Paul now is going to talk about not his former confidence, but his transfer to a newfound confidence. And that confidence is not in the flesh, but it's in Jesus Christ. And that's in verses 7 to 11. I uh, will just give you a little insight into my studies. I actually have two messages on this passage. I had a whole gob of material, and I took some of it, and I formed it into this message that you see before you, and I took some other of it, and I formed it into another message on the same passage. And I've often threatened to do this sometime, to, to preach two different messages on the same text of Scripture. I might do that to you next week, but I might not. So let's just see. Uh, the, the, the thing is, there's, there is a lot of overlap, you know, because it's the same text, but you can do that. You can preach the same text and bring two different applications or two different messages to it, you know, you see what I'm doing here today. My responsibility, as I said this morning, is not only to prepare you to go out and to deal with objections to the faith and to be able to share the gospel in a credible fashion, but also I have to do some of the work of an evangelist, don't I? Just like you do. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, do the work of an evangelist. And if you can't see that in this message, then, you know, come and have your glasses checked. You know, this is what we're doing here. We're doing just what Paul is, is, we're saying what Paul is saying, but we're doing it with an application to remember that he had a B.C. and an A.D., and I want to make sure that you make the transition from the B.C. to the A.D., to make sure that you're born again and you've abandoned your former confidence in the flesh. Um, you know, in fact, when you think about it in the bigger picture, at least I could say this for the, for the Jewish um, people who were kind of stuck on the law of Moses, they had at least this going for them. They had a zeal. They had an affection, an affinity for what God had said in the Bible. Now, they didn't follow it just exactly how, you know, eventually it just became so kind of overloaded with religious cruft, we'll call it, that they weren't really following what the spirit of the law was. But they had some connection back to what God said to Moses. Today, people do the same kind of thing. They have confidence in the flesh, but there's no anchor or mooring at all in biblical revelation. They just say, well, I think, you know, and and what they think invariably trumps what you think, but why should it? Because they're just a man or a woman just like you are. They What they've done is they've said, I'm not going to anchor my thinking in some revelation uh, from God. I'm going to anchor it in myself. 
what I think is going to get me uh, to be okay with God. Because I'm a smart person after all, they think. Um, or I've heard this or, you know, whatever. That's a, that's a very bad situation to be in because, you know, you aren't really that well-informed and wise, I mean, compared to God's Word. You've only been around for a few years. You haven't been around for hundreds or thousands of years. You don't have a lot of wisdom, a lot of experience, especially young people, you know, that think they know a lot but don't, in fact, know very much. And so we have to come to a point of humility, not confidence in ourselves, confidence in the flesh, but rather confidence in Christ. And Paul says, what things were gained to me, I have counted loss for Christ. These words gain and loss are investment terms. They have to do with gaining or earning something versus damage or disadvantage or loss. For a material example of this, you can look in your Bible. You don't have to go there. I'll describe it to you in Acts 27. You remember what happened in Acts 27? Okay. Paul is on his way to Rome, and he has to take a boat ride. That's Acts 27. And that, was, uh, that, that would have been full of seasickness for me, that one. <laughs> that was a bad one. But it says that Paul told them, look, I perceive that this, this journey is going to suffer loss. If you, go, if you go, you're going to suffer loss. And, and he kind of says, after the storm is you know, coming to a close, I kind of told you so. You should have listened to me. Because they had to pitch the, 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 the cargo, the wheat, everything over. I mean, they lost it all. And then the boat was smashed into pieces. If they had just listened to Paul, it would have been safely anchored in harbor, waited for the storm to pass, go in the spring to the place where they were going, and they would have been fine. That's an example of loss. That's the kind of thing we're talking about. That is, if you have confidence in the flesh, you are going to run aground and be shipwrecked in your spiritual life. Shipwrecked. Not a good place to be. Uh, So Paul's talking about, you know, I made an investment that I thought would earn favor from God, but he comes to realize that those things were a bad investment. That company went belly up. It was bankrupt. The stock was worth nothing. In fact, it was worth, worth less than nothing, we'll see. So he recharacterizes his losses as gains. You know, don't you, don't you wish you could do that? You know, you could recharacterize the losses you experience in your 401k, just kind of flip them over and they become gains. That would be nice, wouldn't it? But it doesn't work that way, right? So he says, yes, indeed, I count all things for the law, uh, as loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. We've read through this, so I won't do it again. But it's in the notes there on page three. It's, it's interesting to observe that there are seven things that Paul lists that were positives, he thought, but then they became negatives. And I've listed those in the table at the bottom of three and the top of page number four. He thought his circumcision, his Jewish lineage, his tribal association, he was an observant Hebrew. In fact, he was a Pharisee. He was zealous to the point of persecuting the church. I mean, he just wasn't uh, just some run-of-the-mill guy. He was like, he's all in, you know. He's blameless in terms of law righteousness. And then he says, Oh, down in one of these verses, um, uh, verse 8, I count all things loss. That summarizes everything that he experienced before, all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ. And, and then he says, here's what I replaced it with. Uh, back to the table again on the left-hand column, knowing Christ. He replaced Jewish lineage with Christ himself. Uh, He wanted to be found in Christ. He wanted a righteousness from God through faith in Christ. He wanted to know the power of Christ's resurrection. Welcome, brother. Good to see you this morning. He uh, wanted to know the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. And this is why there's two messages, by the way, on this in my study, because there's too much here to, to detail in one. But he wanted to be conformed to Christ's death. He wanted to attain to the resurrection of the dead. 
what he's saying is, I realize there is nothing that I can do that amounts to profit when it comes to achieving a righteous standing before God and knowing Christ. All things that he was, that he did or could have done, he gives it all up because he recognizes that it's fruitless, it's vaporized when it comes to comparing it to Jesus Christ. Now, how might we understand these items of loss today? In some cases, very much the same way as Paul did. In other cases, we have to kind of update the concept a little bit to bring it into our own modern uh, era, if you will, because we're not all coming out of a, um, a Jewish system of belief. What are we coming out of? All of us. A post-enlightenment, rationalistic, empirical, actually after that, post-enlightenment, uh, neo-pagan, secular humanist mindset, pluralistic to the max. That's what we come out of. We just have to, we have to recognize that so that we know where we're coming from, so that we can know where we need to go and what we need to escape from, as it were. Often what, people, what happens is people believe in themselves and their religious speculations. Uh, you know, my intellect will carry me through. They have a high view of their own intelligence and self-autonomy. Really, they don't want to be under the direction or submission underneath someone else. They don't want God to tell them what to do or anybody to tell them what to do, in fact. Or strangely, they want the government to tell them what to do or something, you know, different, humanistically speaking. Instead of Instead of circumcision for Paul today, it could be baptism or other religious sacraments for us. Instead of Jewish uh, lineage, there are some people who think that they have ethnic superiority. That's a true thing today. It's sad and it's ridiculous, but it's true. Some have, instead of a tribal association like the Apostle Paul, I see what Paul thought was, look, I'm from God's chosen people. I'm okay. You realize that was not true. So today we might have people who, you know, think because they're part of some socioeconomic group, you know, um, that you're blessed by God. Maybe you're economically oppressed, economically poor, or economically blessed. And so one of those things indicates God's favor. You know, God is for the poor, or he's demonstrated his blessing on you because you're wealthy. Right? So you think you have something before God. Uh, a lot of people today say, I'm a spiritual person. Well, of course, everybody, everybody. God made us that way. But when they say spiritual, it's supposed to mean, you know, it's like extra good. You know, I really think about spiritual things or something. That doesn't do anything for anybody. Uh, instead of Paul's idea of, you know, hey, I'm a Pharisee. You know, today it's a religiously disciplined person. I go to church every week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Some people, like Paul, are zealous. You know, I'm, I'm a militant. I'm a fundamentalist. I criticize other religious groups. That's what makes me feel good about myself and my spirituality. Others uh, feel that my good works will outweigh my bad. Or I'm a good person. These are all translations kind of from the old, you know, what Paul was thinking to what we experience today. But notice this, Paul did not only count his former ways to be in the loss column, like, you know, on paper. Like if right now your 401k were vaporized, how would that change how you're living right now at 20 minutes to noon on this March 20th? How would it change you? Nothing. You know, it's kind of like paper dollars, paper records, it just all goes up and it's poof, you know. Now, of course, I understand down the line it may affect your retirement and all that. But what I'm trying to get at is use that as an illustration to say Paul did not only see this as like a loss written on some piece of paper, like a, with a negative sign in front of it. He, he saw these things as rubbish. These things were like a huge bag of garbage or manure that he was carrying around, and all it was doing is weighing him down in his relationship or potential relationship to God. Uh, 
It's only used here in the Bible. It's really like kitchen scraps, refuse, excrement, manure, garbage, trash, or like I like to add, junk, religious junk. These things were worse than like a zero or a negative sign on a piece of paper. Do you understand what I mean? These were like boat anchors that if you're out in the, in the deep, you don't want to be carrying a big bag of heavy stuff. What's the first thing you're going to do? It doesn't matter how heavy it is. It doesn't matter how valuable you think it is. You are letting that thing go and sink to the bottom because you don't want to go with it. So like in Acts 27, the, the cargo of the boat, it goes overboard because they want to be, have more, more uh, flotation, right? More buoyancy so they don't sink to the bottom. So they got to get rid of that stuff. You've got to get rid of your thoughts of confidence in the flesh because all they're doing is dragging you to the bottom of the sea. They are negatives, not zeros, but negatives in your approach to God. So Paul says, look, they've got to jettison all of them. They've got to go out, you know, throw them out the window of the airplane, throw them off overboard, over the, out of the portal, let them sink, get rid of them. Why does Paul recharacterize the losses and, and gains in verse number 8? Well, it turns out Paul realized he was originally investing in the loss column. You know, it's like throwing good money after bad. You've got a losing investment, a company that can't manage itself, uh, bad staff, uh, bad financial accounting, and you're throwing more money and more money and more money into it. It's like, stop doing that. You know, stop putting good money after bad. Paul thinks now that his estimation of losses and gains have totally changed. His previous inheritance and investments were actually moving him away from eternal life rather than toward it. That's the odd thing. People think, I'm on the way to God. You know, they're, re- they're reading all the signs that were painted up there by humanity, like this is the way to God, or there are many ways to God. And they're reading all those road signs and they're thinking, oh, I must be okay when the way to God is over there through Christ. It's not through their own flesh and their own confidence. So he left these things behind like so much boat anchors sinking a ship that he might not be dragged down with them. All of this was far surpassed by the excellence of knowing Christ. My friends, there's nothing that compares to the excellency of knowing Jesus Christ. There's no, there's no sacrament. There's no religious work. There's no philosophy. To know him is eternal life, John 17, 3, isn't it? Nothing compares to that. Knowing him surpasses all the other gains that one could amass. You know, you think, you think that some of the rich people out there have made, you know. They don't have anything. If they don't have Christ, they have nothing. It will perish. Everything will perish. You cannot take it with you to heaven. The only thing you, that you can hope to go to heaven is your soul, and that's if Christ carries it there Amen. on his shoulders that bore your sins in his body on the tree. Paul gave up everything. It was only a loss from his previous point of view, by the way. He didn't consider it a loss now in his, in his A.D. period of life. It was no loss at all. It was actually a gain to get rid of the losses. We should note here the focus on, on Christ. Would you, Paul, he says, I consider it, I want to know him, I count it a great joy. And then if you look at, look at the table again on um, pages 3 and 4, notice what I did there in the notes on pages 3 and 4. Look at every time the word Christ occurs. You see I put it in bold text? I did that for this reason, to call out that now Paul's mentality about salvation is it's all of Christ. I want to know him. I want to be found in Christ. I want to have a righteousness that comes through Christ. I want to know the power of Christ's resurrection. I want to know the fellowship of Jesus Christ's sufferings. I want to be conformed to his death. That is amazing. That is what his focus is now. Instead of confidence in himself, me, me, me. No, it's Christ, Christ, Christ. He is our Savior alone. There is none other. There is no way to God. I mean, look, 
it's so sad. You know, the, the Bible tells us very clearly, you can only be saved through Jesus Christ. No one comes to the Father except through him. Very clear. And yet people invent all these other ways to try to get to God. It's, it's, it's foolish. It's, it's useless. All the gains that Paul saw were these. Let me list them for you again and explain them briefly. He wanted to know Christ. A close kind of knowledge here. What does he say in verse number um, 8? He says, For the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. This is a personal, intimate knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. A close knowledge of Christ. Secondly, Christ himself is the object. He says that I may gain what? Christ. Anything is worth trading or throwing away for him. He, he says, I want to gain Christ. What does it mean to gain Christ? Can I, get, can I give you a horrifying opposite to illustrate the meaning of gain? What does it mean if you lose your spouse? What does it mean if you lose your child? What does it mean if you lose a parent? Now imagine losing Christ. Could you, I mean, as bad as losing a child or losing a friend or losing a spouse is, can you imagine losing Christ? The opposite of that is what it means to gain Christ. Think of the depth of grief and just invert that and make it the height of joy and the height of blessing to gain Christ. I want also to, you can't imagine losing Christ, can you? You can't imagine. You cannot imagine. Paul said also, thirdly, I want to be found in him. I want to be found in him. I want when God looks at Christ, he finds me there, in him. Because if I'm not found there, yikes. I don't want to be found in Adam and in sin, and in death, I want to be found in him. Fourthly, he says, I want the righteousness from God through faith in Christ. This is, this is the core of the gospel message. This is the core of Christianity. Could I say it that way? Because it's true. Listen to Romans chapter 3, if you would, please. If you're at all concerned about how to be right with God, this is the verse for you, or section for you. Romans 3 starting in verse number 21. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there's no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, this Christ, whom God set forth as a propitiation, that is, as a satisfaction by his blood, through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, the big, the big problem in the gospel is, how can God stay holy and make sinful men holy? How can God stay righteous and impute righteousness to humanity without smearing his own righteousness? And the genius plan that God shows us in the gospel is that he himself and the person of his son came down to take the payment, the penalty to pay for our sins so that he could remain just and forgive us our, our iniquities. Remember this morning we said, God cannot simply on fiat mercy say, your sins are forgiven. He says, on the basis of Jesus Christ's work, your sins are forgiven. That's what God's word says. And so he can be just and he can justify you without just sweeping your sins aside or sweeping them under the cosmic rug or just pretending they didn't exist because that's not true. They do exist, don't they? You are a sinner. 
you have done, you can't just say, well, well, forget about that and it'll just go away after a while. It doesn't do that. That's not how it works, okay? You've done criminal activity. There's no statute of limitations in God's economy, okay? The righteousness which is from God through faith in Christ is the way to overcome that whole conundrum. God can be right and you can be right. Number five, Paul wants to know the power of Christ's resurrection. Now, what does he mean by that? That's a head scratcher in a way, isn't it? To know the power of his resurrection. To know the power is not just to understand it in your mind. Okay, It is to experience it, to really know it. And what is that power? Um. Remember in the Old Testament how God parted the Red Sea? That was the standard of his power in the Old Testament. That was like the pinnacle miracle in the Old Testament. What's the pinnacle miracle of all time? The resurrection of Christ. You think of what it would take. What would it take for scientists to raise somebody from the dead today? They cannot do it. But let's imagine that they could. How much energy they would have to put in. How many trillions of dollars. How much machinery and electricity and chemistry and and all that. I mean, the power to be able to retrieve the spirit of someone back into their... it's, It's actually, you can't do it. I mean, it's not possible. The power that God has of resurrection in Christ and in us and what that power does, since that same power, uh, Ephesians 1, let me uh, just read this. If, you're, if you feel weak today, listen to this. Paul asks God that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened, that you would know what the hope of his calling is, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints is, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. That very same power that God worked in Christ raising him from the dead is that power that Paul wants us to know in operation in our own lives. And that's what Paul is saying. I want to know that. Not in my head. I want to experience it. You know, he had experienced a great deal of it, but he wanted more. How about you? Have you experienced the resurrection power of God at work in your life to cause you to be sanctified, to raise you up out of a life of sin? You know, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, because we've been, we've been given a new life. We've been raised out of that and into newness of life. We've been de- become devoted to good works. Our minds are set on things above. We look for eternal living hope, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. I've, I've given verses for all those statements here in the notes for you. The resurrection means we have, in Christ, conquered sin and we live for God. We've been disconnected from the ways of the world and we've been connected to the ways of God. Remember how Paul said that the world is crucified to me and I to the world? Of course, in the crucifixion of Christ, what he's basically saying is the world is dead to me and I've been resurrected to a new life toward God. That's what he wants to know, the resurrection power of the living God operative in his life. This can apply to all kinds of things. You're facing a trial or struggle right now? Apply to that power. You have some temptation that seems overwhelming? Appeal to the power of the resurrection in Christ. You don't know where to turn, what to do, how to think? The power of the resurrection of Christ. Ask God to work that in you. Some Christians used to speak about not knowing the power of the resurrection as living in a constant state of spiritual defeat. I ask myself and you, are you living in that state? Do you really know the power of the resurrection in your life, not just in your head? Number six, Paul says, I want to experience or know the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. See, this is the wisdom of God. If I were writing this, I wouldn't have even thought to say, I want to know more about Christ's sufferings in my personal experience. But you know what? That's what we do as Christians. 
And that's what Paul was experiencing. This is not mental knowledge of Christ's sufferings. That is sharing in the sufferings of being a Christian because you belong to Jesus. This is persecution. This is ostracism from family. This is the world shuts you out because you're totally different than they are. This is even martyrdom for the name of Christ. Paul believed that suffering was beneficial for Christians. If for no other reason, what would it do? It would teach us to trust God and not ourselves, and it would help us to comfort others who come through suffering. That's what it means to know the fellowship of Christ's sufferings, briefly at least. Seven, he says, I want to be conformed to Christ's death. I'll come to that in a moment. And then eight, he wants to attain to the resurrection of the dead. Did I get my numbers off here? I have to double check those. <laughs> yeah, he, he uh, no, there actually is eight here. There's seven in the other list. That's right, I'm getting my lists mixed up. That's the, this is the last goal here, to attain to the resurrection of the dead. Paul throwing out his old investments, knowing Christ, he doesn't arrogantly lay claim to the resurrection of the dead. You know, sometimes we, we kind of say, look, I know that I'm going to be raised from the dead. I know that I'm going to heaven. Yes, you do know that. But can you, can you season that with a little humility? Paul says, I, 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 I'm, I want to attain to the resurrection of the dead by whatever means. Whatever way God brings me there, however that happens, whether it's through suffering, martyrdom, or sickness, or, or whatever, I want to attain to the resurrection of the dead. This is not an arrogant laying claim to the resurrection of the dead, but he is looking forward to it. We often overlook this hope, by the way. We go right from, I'm going to die and I'm going to go to heaven. Yeah, but what happens in the middle? You're going to die and go to the intermediate heaven and then come back at the rapture and have your body restored and, and connected back with your spirit and then go into the kingdom and then go into heaven. Don't forget the resurrection of the dead. You know, don't just think of yourself, I leave my body and I go to heaven and that's where I am forever. No, you are going to be resurrected in a physical body. Your body will be restored to your spirit and you will live forever that way in a human body, glorified for sure, but nonetheless human. You will attain to the resurrection of the dead. And if you have the attitude of the Apostle Paul, you look at verse 11, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. However God works that out, I want it. I want it. That one that I skipped over was to be conformed to his death. What does that mean? Well, I give you some ideas, but to cut the time short, I'll come to number four on the back page of the notes, page eight there. The meaning to be conformed to his death is really this, that you would be conformed to the purpose for Christ's death. In other words, why is it that Christ died? Whatever that purpose was, that was the purpose that animated the Apostle Paul. That's what he wanted. Christ's purpose in dying was what? Why did he die for us? Well, I mean, among other things, let me just share with you this one from Titus. I give the address there in the notes. But in Titus chapter 2, it says of Christ, he gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous of good works. Christ's purpose in dying was to redeem us from every evil work and to make us a people who are good. We should not only want to have those results in our lives, we want to be good. We want to be delivered from every evil deed. But also, if we follow Paul's example, we should work to see that that same thing is accomplished in the lives of others. I want to know, he says, the power of his resurrection, and I want to be conformed to his death, which means why he died is what I look like. The reason he died to redeem me, that's what I want to be like. Christ died to redeem people. We should be conformed to his death by living as redeemed, 
and living to redeem others. Living as redeemed and living to redeem others. Christ died on a cross in closure here and bore in his own body our sins that he might bring us to God. This destroys all other righteousness-seeking programs in the sight of God. Every single one, every idea, every other religion is an attack on the work of Christ. That's how you have to really see it because what it's saying is, I don't need Christ. I can do it some other way. I can do it my way or this other religion's way. That is an affront to the living God who sent his son to die for sinners and provide the way of salvation. Christ died to redeem us. Let us live as redeemed and live to redeem others. Christianity is not a righteousness-earning system. We're talking about Paul's highest desire, a total change in his thinking from his prior legalism. His life now is animated and directed toward Christ, the person of the God-man. He wants to fully know Christ, his resurrection power, his sufferings, his righteousness. And the question to close today is this, is Jesus Christ your highest prize and your deepest desire? Your highest prize and your deepest desire. I trust that he is because everything else is a bag of garbage drawing you down to the bottom of the depths of the sea. Don't suffer shipwreck with your spiritual life. Heavenly Father, I pray that the words of this good news will penetrate all of our hearts and we will rejoice in it. Or if we don't know it yet, we might struggle a little bit with it. But in that struggle, I pray that your spirit will work to bring conviction of sin until we come to humble ourselves before the Lord Jesus Christ. May we believe in him and may he be indeed our highest prize, our deepest desire. May we live as redeemed and live to redeem others. In Jesus' name, amen.